listening to the Arsenal Therapy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Arsenal Therapy Podcast. My name is Farhan, also known as Gunner Since 96, and as always, joining me here um, this afternoon is <laughs> Adam Keys. Adam, are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, let's do this. So, should all Arsenal players on international duty get maximum minutes on the pitch? No. Will Pepe be remembered as one of the flocks at Arsenal? Yes. And will Saka's PFA award, England award and Ballon d'Or nomination elevate him to another level? No. Wow, interesting. That final question, definitely a final answer, I should say. Um, surprised me a bit. I was expecting the opposite answer, but I'm sure we'll go into it um, as we get to that part of the show. Adam, how are you doing? I know we're, we're in two different time zones right now, so I feel like we're a little bit out of sync. Um, but how's yeah. it going? Yeah, in I'm the Big good. Apple? Yeah, I'm currently in New York, so I have just been getting some breakfast next to Times Square. I'm staying next to Central Park. So, so yeah, it's good. It's good. It's it's weird being on such a different time difference to the football around the world. So it, I was hoping Arsenal would be playing and I would have got to the Arsenal New York Supporters Club while I was here to watch the game, but not to be. It's, um, but I guess it means kind of not missing a lot of football so so yeah it's good it's good to be out here and um, it's very hot though as first time in, in the London. states no no i've been here it's my third time in new york so oh nice our, my company's head office is here so i'm out for work so, oh, okay okay so yes yeah, so i've just taken a weekend to hang out with the boys beforehand amazing well yeah as i was i was saying to you before we started recording it's blistering in the uk in london more specifically and yeah i'm finding it really difficult to um sound enthusiastic um i was like i was like this close to just like calling it off like no the heat has got to me i can't do it it would have been such a british thing to do um but no we we, we keep going and 32 degrees though i mean it would have been you know understandable had i cancelled this week's pod it would have been understandable i'm sure the people would have um got it but we're here now, and also to make things worse, it's international break. And I don't know about you, but I just really don't give a shit about international break. What were you like during yeah. this, this period? It's a weird one because I'm from Northern Ireland. So, our, like Johnny Evans scored for us the other night, and Johnny Evans is still one of the best players in the team at 35, who's a long way off what he once was. And international breaks for me, I'm, I mainly follow what England are doing. But I'll be honest, I just watch Arsenal players, have a look at every team that has an Arsenal player and see how they've got on, watch comps. But I do watch England's games if I've got time, if I'm free. Aside from that, I don't really watch international football. And it's honestly, I'm just pining for the, the real football to come back. And I think pretty much everyone is, except maybe lower league fans that do go and follow England, go and... Or, countries where there is no strong domestic leagues so so yeah it's just a weird time i find it really strange you know i mean i know um when we when, when we saw each other at wembley and your dad was asking me how comes i don't like international football one of the main reasons is because i don't get the idea of supporting other players from mm. other clubs i just find it really weird like i can't for the life of me, cheer for like Harry Kane or Harry Maguire. Do you know what I mean? So I'm more of the type of person, I mean, especially if it's not competitive, you know, if it's just like qualifiers or friendly, it's like, what's the point, you know? Yeah. Um, but this, at this point, at this point in time, it's, 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 it's interesting and it's more relevant for us Arsenal fans because it gives the players more minutes. Um, mm. And, and I guess in a less pressurized environment as well, playing with other players as well. So giving them that opportunity to kind of really sharpen up before we go again. Um, so, yeah, I mean, are you, are you missing Arsenal at the moment? Yeah, I, it's weird because I'm really riding that high of the United game and I'm with a United fan in New York. So we, we spent <laughs> a lot of time talking about the game last night and then 
so yeah, it, it is one of those I've I've kind of binged a lot of pods this week and it is funny whenever you I was talking to Jack from the, the purely Arsenal pod about this. There are weeks where you have like a massive win like we've just had against United. I think that massive euphoria of a late minute goal, you want to keep reliving the game. So I've listened to like pure I, I was on the purely Arsenal pod as well. Um Listen back to our pod, the Arsenal Vision, the Arsecast, Handbrake Off, Harry Simeus, Tom Cantons, and like really just relived it from every angle. So I, in some ways, it's been quite nice living that kind of wave of high from the United game, but I am definitely ready for the next game now. And I think Everton's also a game that it's never an easy one. We haven't won there since 2017. So having that right after an international break is not nice. And I, I just really wish Arsenal were playing this weekend, to be honest. It's like even a win like we've just had, there's only so much you can ride that high before you want that next game. And I think we're, we're there now. It's the natural order of things meant to be have a game the next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find it strange. Again, after four games, we've got an international break. Has it has it ever been like that before? You know, in a new Premier League season, having uh, played played four games and then a break in between. Yeah. So th- this is this break is always at this time. Sometimes oh, really? it's oh, sometimes there's five games played. Sometimes there's four. So uh, so yeah, it's always around this time, and it's always a horrible international break. I remember the most kind of. The most horrible international break I've ever had was when Ozil signed for Arsenal. Mm. So it was he signed on deadline day, and then there was the international break. Mm. So he went away, and um, I remember that that game. Germany had a friendly, and Ozil completed a hundred percent of his passes in the game, and had one of the the highest passing numbers. And at the time, because this is ten years ago, pretty much exactly, we he um, we were just all itching to get him. There's the complete high of signing him on deadline day and then it was that really long agonizing wait to see him and I was at his debut as well so I had a ticket for the Sunderland game and it was one of those Ozil was one of my favorite players I used to watch Spanish football all the time so the kind of that pinch yourself moment have we really signed him to then this really long wait to see him so I I really do hate this international break so Mm. Well, I mean, it's almost over. Um, this one, this does seem a little bit shorter than others. I know they, they, they're roughly the same amount of time, but a week's already gone by. And it feels like that, we- I mean, that week, the majority of it has been consumed by a lot of the relived moments from that game against United, a lot of, you know, memes and a lot of um, shithousery and, and, and banter, if you will, um, against Ten Hag and against United fans and all the media stuff. So another week to go um, until we play Everton. We will have a chat about Everton. But let's just look back at the first opening four games. And as a whole, I guess, rather than um, relating it to Arsenal specifically, which team do you think has looked the best in the opening four games? In the league? Sorry. Yeah. City? <laughs> really? I mean, it's a hard one. It's um, City have scored a lot of goals. They've kind of dispatched with teams really easily. I don't think they're playing really eye-catching football, but I think they're mm. playing typically ruthless football that we now associate with them. I think the Centurions were unbelievable to watch. They moved the ball so quickly. Sonny and Sterling on the wings. They don't, they don't have that anymore, but they're just a very, very ruthless side. Um I don't want to give Tottenham any credits, um, they, although they are playing some good football. I don't think that will last. I think Madison will get injured, as he always does. Um, but yeah, West Ham are looking very good. And I mean, Evan Ferguson's looking great for Brighton. So there are, I, to be honest, I think the Spurs have come flying out of the traps, playing very nice football. And... I believe Arsenal and a few other clubs are very much working their way into the season, getting results and building it up that way. So I, if I'm being completely honest, no one has really been like, wow, this is incredible football so far. I think there has been a fairly slow start getting results. And um, it has been a lot of what I expected from preseason. And um, yeah, that's where we're at right now. What about you? I, I would have said Brighton. 
except they did lose to West Ham, and West Ham have yeah. been pretty good as well. But Brighton have had, um, I think, of all the teams, would you say Brighton have had the toughest run um, so far? Yeah, Newcastle, Newcastle had the right. toughest. Newcastle played City, Liverpool. Yeah, you're right, yeah. Um, Aston Villa Aston at the Villa, beginning. smashed. And Brighton. But, I mean, they lost yeah. three of those. So, yeah. of, of, of all the teams who have maybe had, um, of all the teams who are near the top, the hardest run of the bunch, I would say, would be Brighton. Uh, I think Arsenal, you know, maybe you could put Arsenal in there, but we're a unique no, case. No, I, I think we've had three home games against... Yeah. And we were yet to play a good team, so... Like City struggled. City struggled in the first game. They've, I think they've... I think they've made it look more difficult than they needed to. Um, I mean, Fulham, they obliterated, and I think that's where they kind of introduced themselves in the league. Um, but in the other three games, they, it wasn't as convincing as um, we've seen them make it. Let's have a look to see who they've played. So, yeah, they played Burnley on the opening week. They, that, yeah, they, they didn't they, play they great. had that one by half time though. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do think with City, it is a case. So if we see this every year where City just kind of get results. They beat teams that are really, really solid defensively. Obviously, they've got Rodri, who's a ridiculous player in midfield. And um, they've got Haaland, who's just a freak of nature up front. And mm. when you've got the kind of core spine of players that they've got, it's like you look at those that played the most minutes for them last year, it was Haaland and Rodri. Mm. And um, you take Rodri out of that team. I've said this for a long time. They will not be as good or as dominant as they are he's already played nearly 100 passes more than any other player in the league yeah so it's every year these stats it's consistency and i i I talk about minutes all the time and i've been accused of being harsh on thomas party but for me rodri's the bar that is if you want to be the best in the world at the number six role right now you have to be better than rodri and rodri is available every week gives you at least a seven out of ten every week for 50, 60 games. Thomas Party gives us a nine for 20 games and probably a five for 10 games and then somewhere in between the rest of those. So it's Rodri's the bar and I think you take him out of that city team, different side. And obviously Haaland. Do do you think Declan Rice will uh, rise up to that ability this season? I, I don't know if he'll surpass Rodri this season, but I think he... I just think Rodri's been playing in such a high possession based team and knows his role so well, and he's been doing it now for three or four years. So I, I think Rodri's so established, and now he's adding goals to his game as well. I think Rice will reach that level, possibly reach it this season, but I don't know. I think they are also slightly different players, but mm. who both play the same role. But I think Rice has all the ingredients to be the best in the world. I. Everyone knows how much I've wanted Declan Rice, and I, I still can't believe we've got him. So I, I genuinely believe he has the ability to be the best in the world in his position. Yeah, and um, you know his his heat map shows that he's yet to really establish himself in any particular position. He's here, there, everywhere. You know, we don't know yeah. what Arteta's plans are for him. And if we have a look at um, Rodri's heat map, um, Rodri's looking a quarterback. At kind of- he, he's that linchpin in the team he sits and hello he I, I saw an interview with Rodri and he was talking about his role as a six and um, that he's now able to add goals he was saying because Gundahan very much played that more attacking role and he said Kovacic is very very intelligent at dropping back in and allowing him to go forward and he, he talked about how much he's enjoying playing with him and it could mean we see some more goals from Rodri this season so potentially his position could kind of change a bit in the way very much in the way we're talking about with Declan Rice um, Rice again after the United game talked about the 6 being his preferred role mm-hmm. but Arteta's coaching him to play the 8 role as well so he wants that tactical flexibility and I still can't wait to the day we see Zinchenko, Pardew and Rice all on the pitch mm. together Yeah, yeah, absolutely Okay, uh, moving on um, 
we we found out for, uh, earlier on in the week. Well, it's it's been a few days. I think uh, forty eight hours since the official news of uh, Pepe's departure. Um, so I thought we'd have a quick chat about him because it's uh, it's relevant now, isn't it? Um, what went wrong with Nicola Pepe? It's it's a really really tough question to answer. I think there are very few that can genuinely pinpoint where it went wrong because as a ball striker, as a carrier, he's got a lot of talent. And I think part of the issue with Pepe is he's quite a messy dribbler in the sense that a bit untidy, he the ball can really be glued to his feet, but it can also seem like out of control the way he's running. And that was part of his kind of electricity, that kind of spark that really made him dangerous. But the way Arteta likes to play, he wants a much more controlled approach. And if you compare him to Saka, I think we also can't look past Saka is part of the problem for Pepe. We had a talent coming through that was so, so good that I think Arteta thought, this player has everything I want in that role and I can coach him and literally mold him into exactly what I want him to be. And that happened. He trusted Saka. I think the Willian transfer hurt Pepe. And although Pepe still finished that season with quite a few goals, he did all right that year. And if you look at his goals for Arsenal, he did well in his first two seasons. Got a decent number of assists. He's got more goals and assists than Anthony and Sancho combined. Mm. So it's a funny one. I think the... Probably it all went wrong with the transfer fee. Pepe was a thirty million pound player that we paid seventy two for. And actually if he arrived for thirty million, we probably wouldn't have had that level of expectation. And it would have meant that I think we thought we were getting a superstar and he never was that. And it just basically never fully clicked. Even when he was playing at his best, I think there were, were always moments. I I've seen a lot of people talking about that performance against United. You know, where he scored. Um, yeah. I, I think it might be Saka's assist, and um, he comes running in, hit, hits the ball at the edge of the six, and scores. He came off after sixty-two minutes in that game, which, like sixty-two, is very, very early. And that was, I, I'm sure, that was Arteta in charge at the time. Teta doesn't make changes at the hour mark very often. So it kind of shows that even when he was playing well, he was never fully trusted by Arteta. And I think for me, the biggest problem with Pepe was he never asserted himself within the team. You know, the way um, like Odegaard's come in and very quickly kind of asserted his role and his qualities. And we've seen that with Declan Rice. Declan Rice is a hundred million player. He's someone who's come in. He hasn't waited for a settling in period. He's very much become like one of the leaders in the team straight away and even on I think it might have been the Palace game him and Odegaard had a bit of like a few words with each other on the pitch and I liked saying that because it was like that's a player that knows what his job is straight away and he he's here to perform from day one and I, I think Pepe just had a really hard time settling as uh, alongside the playing style he never looked fully comfortable with the group or part of it. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there was just endless issues that, but I also, from what you hear and what you read, he trained hard. He was liked within the squad. He was just incredibly shy. So I think all of those factors played into him just not being the player we thought he was going to be. Yeah. I, I think a lot of it is circumstantial. Um, you know, some of the reasons why it didn't work out, were out of his control. Essentially, he was playing under three managers. Um, you know, he signed in 2019, and then a few months later, you you saw the the departure of Unai Emery. Then you saw Freddie Umber come in for a few games. Then Arteta came in and didn't fancy him. There was a change of culture. The squad that he was in um, as well was fragmented. You know, yeah. you look at the situation that happened between Abamyang and Arteta, but also that. I guess, group of, you know, French individuals, Lacazette, Aubameyang, him as well. Um, there were the other lots as well. You had the, the, the Gwendouzi. You also have that. You had David Luiz there as well. Pablo Mari. Um, Mustafi was there, of course. Um, Socrates. So it, it, it was a squad that was going through 
that, that was turning that corner. Um, you know, Lucas Torreira there as well, who didn't want to be there. It was so unfortunate that he had joined Arsenal, number one, for that fee, but number two, during that period of time. I yeah. do feel like, had he signed for Arsenal a few seasons later, now, let's say, or even last season, we'd see a completely different player. His confidence I was shot. I, I don't think we would ever sign a player like him now. Hmm. I think we, we're just so far past that. And I, I think one of the things as well, we bought a player, I think Eddie referenced this in an interview a couple of years ago, where he was saying that Arsenal tried to go out and buy one player that they thought would elevate the team straight away. And like Eddie wasn't, Eddie joined that window, so he wasn't part of the Pepe deal. And in the same way, he wasn't part of the Martinelli deal. He, he gets a lot of credit for that, but actually... Edu didn't have anything to do with that. He hadn't joined Arsenal at the time that that deal was agreed. And um, but with Pepe, he said that the feeling with Sanlehi and people like that was someone like Pepe would kind of help paper over the cracks and lift the team and elevate them. And that's why whenever a year later they went out and bought Pardew and Gabriel, and then the following year they went out and bought a whole new spine to the team and added Ramsdale, White, Tomiyasu, Odegaard. And then obviously Sambi and Tavares. So it um, they, they were very much building the squad very quickly. But I think the Pepe deal actually had massive ramifications in, on our transfers. And in some ways, it was the best worst transfer we've ever made because mm. it was so bad that it kind of made us completely tear up our transfer approach and review it all and actually go with a much more concise set of plans. And let's face it, not many transfers have gone wrong since then. Yeah. And even Fabio Vieira, who was one that people used to beat Arteta with a stick for, he's now shown his quality and we're starting to see it's only really, if we're being completely honest, Lekonga that hasn't really worked out. And because Tavares was bought for a low fee, it was one we needed a left back cover. And we're going to sell him for roughly double what we've got him for if he goes to Forest. So, yeah. So, yeah. Let's not forget as well that during that window, we did actually make some shrewd acquisitions. We made some. Pre- Tierney, we made pretty good Martin signs. Kieran yeah. Saliba. Saliba, right? Saliba was the big one, and then Sabios on loan for a season from from Madrid is 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 not bad. David Luiz from Chelsea as well. He did a good job. You know, we can't deny that. I it's like not David a great Luis. move. But he did a good job. Um, and so the, the window itself, we were quite happy with. If we cast our minds back, we were singing praises for Sanyehi until Don it came Raul. out later. Right. Until it came out later on where we realized actually he was cooking the book. So it did seem a bit um, suspicious. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's going to be a shame um, to see the back of Pepe. And I don't think there's much love between him and Arsenal either. It surprised me a little bit that there wasn't a farewell message or there wasn't something for the fans after he left. It was kind of straight into a welcome or, um, you know, addressing himself to the new Trasman Spore fans. Um, mm. What do you think his feelings are towards Arsenal? And do you think they're justified as well? I, I don't know. I, I don't know his feelings either way, because as I said, he never felt like he was part of the group. You know the way we, we talk about players that get what Arsenal's all about? Arsenal's a club with a very, very defined history. Mm. And I, I never... Th- felt that Pepe fully embraced that. Uh, like, again, right, not to keep beating the Declan Rice drum, but if you look at the way he spoke, all the traditions, all the things that when Eddie was showing him around, he was asking questions, he was interested. He was also interested in like the youth team, the women's team, the men's team, all training in the same areas and really praising that. He talked about like kind of your legacy number with the club, all those things. And I remember Lacazette doing the translation for Pepe when he was showing him around on his arrival. And it was weird because I was really pleased we had bought Pepe because in my head I had built him up to be something he wasn't. And Pepe looked completely disinterested doing the tour and it was Laka translating and trying to have a bit of banter with him. And from day one, I I just never felt that he kind of clicked with it. So in terms of now his feelings after leaving... I don't know. I don't know about you, but I just feel that it's a bit of a meh. It's like oh, I'm gone now, and mm. the fact that he's gone—it's such a drastic step down that he's made. It's he maybe he's he looks back with a bit of what if, 
if only I'd applied myself more, if I'd worked harder. But even at that, I don't know if that's true because we've never heard any negative reports about him training. And those kind of things tend to come out. And I think it was just a case of he wasn't good enough or he wasn't the player Arteta wanted. But yeah, it's, I, I really don't know what his feelings are towards the club. Okay, well, um, swaying away from Nicola Pepe, a player who's departed and I guess looking to the future and at players who will be um, proving themselves to one day play regular first-team football. And one in particular in Charlie Patino, who has taken to Swansea um, like a really well. Water. Yeah, really, really well. Looks like he is on that positive upward trajectory. He's played four games for them, three assists. Um, according to SofaScore, he's averaging at a 7.5 rating, which is really, really good. And he looks really confident now playing in the championship. It, it, he's on the cusp, isn't he, of playing at least, if not regular football for Arsenal, Premier League football, definitely. A hundred percent. I think he's... the. I talked about this on the 15-minute show on Thursday. Charlie Patino started well at Blackpool and then Mick McCarthy came in and he didn't last very long. And when I went to see Blackpool play, they were playing the most negative long ball football. And Charlie and the other midfielders barely touched the ball. And he was very good off the ball that day, but he he barely touched it. And for me, you want him playing in a possession-based team. You want him developing that onside, like on the ball game. And by similar... You want him developing his off-the-ball skill set. And I think the you have to remember Blackpool were relegated last year. And although Charlie Patino had a good season, I think him and his agent thought a lot of Premier League clubs would have come in for him. Obviously, that wasn't the case. And there were there was more championship interest in a permanent move. And then the loan kind of came out of nowhere. We all thought he was destined to leave permanently. And... He's managed, Arsenal managed to send him on loan. So for me, the big thing with him is we're going to need to extend that contract. And I think if he has a really good season on loan and there is potential for him to play for Arsenal next season, he would sign that extension. I think the the issue for him this summer was he, he was just quite a bit away from where we are. But in that left eight role, there I think that's one of the positions within the team that there is a real opening. Even now, we're talking about Havertz, we're talking about um, Fabio Vieira, Smithrow. None of them have nailed that role down. Vieira's done it in two substitute appearances where we've been chasing a winner. Very, very different to doing it from the start. And um, Havertz, mixed results, we've obviously discussed. But um, And Smithrow, we keep being told everyone's convinced he's a left eight. Never played there. So mm-hmm. that, that it's one of those... He's got all the skills, and aside from like a couple of friendly games, we haven't actually seen Smith Rowe in a big game play in that position. So for me, that's where Charlie Patino has an opportunity. If he does do well at Swansea, come back next year, get on the preseason tour, and because I think is he nineteen or is he twenty? He's still 19. very. He's nineteen. He's very very young, and he's someone that I think. A good season at Swansea, he could come back because it's three assists in four games for him now. Mm-hmm. His numbers are really good. The Swansea fans have really, really taken to him. And he's someone that I would really like to have. I know Monty and I have talked about him a lot over the summer. And he was rated so highly at the academy. I think just that move to Blackpool wasn't a great one. And it's on, it's not like Arsenal to get those moves wrong. But I think when he went there, it was the right move. Then they had multiple managers in the end. And Arsenal nearly recalled him last year in January to send him somewhere else and decided to keep him at Blackpool. And in hindsight, we should have sent him somewhere else in the way we did with Norton Coffey. Yeah, didn't he suffer quite a significant injury as well at Blackpool? I don't um, think so. Was it, it must, either last season or the season before, I do remember seeing that. He suffered a knee injury. I think it was for Blackpool, yeah. And he was out oh, for he did, quite a significant have, time. He did have an injury at one point. I don't think it was um, – it, it was an ankle injury. He okay. only missed five games. 
Mm. Just yeah. looked at it here. I remember because he came back to Arsenal to yeah. get the medical treatment. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it was. I think it was literally a kick to the ankle, something like that. It wasn't a particularly serious one. He missed 20 days in five games. So obviously in the championship, thick and fast. So just yeah, a few weeks yeah. out. I will be actually keeping a close eye on him, Swansea, because it doesn't look like Swansea are doing too great, but he is the standout performer in that squad, which means that they will be looking at him to, you know, for 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 the creativity in midfield, predominantly playing on the left hand side. And you know what? I would really, I, I would love to see him pick up almost like a, a Bukayo Saka role when Saka was playing left back, um, just. Or, or who's that guy that played for Brighton a few seasons back and then he kind of fell off? Um, oh, really small, very speedy. Um, God, he was a talk of the town. And then he just fell off because oh, he suffered too many injuries. Lamptey. Lamptey, yeah. yeah. Tank Lamptey. I'd love to see Patino try and adopt that sort of role because he's got the stature for it and his playing style was quite similar in the sense that he's very energetic, very, um, you know, front-footed as well, um, but also yeah, very but technically he, gifted. He's much more of a controller. So mm. I, I, I definitely wouldn't compare him to Lamptey. I guess in terms of like how Saka moved the ball, there, he could. I see him more as a very agile granite Saka. Someone okay. that, that can really put their foot on the ball with more of the kind of, Zinchenko-like agility, not quite to the same level as as Zinchenko because he's just ridiculous in terms of how fast he can like turn and everything. Mm. But but yeah, I I see him as someone that could be a left hand controller for Arsenal, a bit like your your Shaka or your Gundahan, and someone that if he adds goals to his game, he could really be that player. But that's going to take a lot of coaching and I think as well patience. So we forget with Saka and Smith Rowe that one of the reasons they got their opportunity so young at Arsenal was because Arsenal were not a good side. So Saka would not be breaking into the Arsenal team right now at 17 because Arsenal are too good. So he Saka came through at the perfect time and I think Arsenal also realised that they had a Ballon d'Or worthy talent coming through. And they were willing to sacrifice some things to help bring these players through. And I also think if Lewis Skelly and Wanari were coming through at the same time as Saka, they would have got first team minutes much, much earlier. And mm. this is something people criticize Arteta for it, but Saka had played six games under Emery. Um, Smith Rowe had played something like six as well. And he had been sent on loan a couple of times. And um, Enkadio was on loan at Leeds. So, Yes, Arteta hasn't given many players their debut other than Moneri and Patino, but he fully built everything around Bukayo Saka, which not many other managers would have done. So I think if the talent's there, he will give them a chance. And I'm hoping the fact that they've sent Patino on loan rather than just selling him for maybe 10 million or something like that means Arteta really wants to keep him because this guy's got a lot of talent and he's now got into the England under-21 squad, as has Norton Coffey. So I think playing under-21 football for England is going to help develop him that bit more as well because he's going to be playing with better players. And just being exposed to different environments, it helps people grow and mature. Yeah, well, a player who forced his way into the first team, you know, despite having so many shortcomings, is Reese Nelson. And I want to take this opportunity to discuss him in a little bit more detail because I feel like um, I feel like he, he he's someone who has proven he's good enough to get more minutes than, than he's getting. And when he came off the bench against United, he made a drastic impact. Yeah. He brought on that energy on the on the left hand side, which actually led to the corner, which led to the inevitable goal. Um, and it's just unfortunate that he hasn't been getting the right type of game time. And I had a quick look at the minutes that he had at the back end of last season, the games that he was um, he put in. And actually, some of those games, a lot of those games, four out of the five games that I had a look at, were really really difficult games for him to 
inject himself in. So he was played against Man City, away away to Man City, home to Chelsea, away to Newcastle, home to Brighton, and the final game against Wolves. Um, and the game against Wolves, he had a pretty good performance. All the other four games, he was a little bit isolated. Um, came came on against United and proved himself. Um, worthy. I mean, we, we forget, don't we, that he's 23 years old, but he feels like he's been here forever. And, you know, we were all a little bit disappointed that Arsenal hadn't signed someone to um, help Bakayo Saka out on the right-hand side. Now, I know Nelson predominantly plays on the left, but he can play on the right as well. Um, mm. I feel like right now is the perfect time for, for someone, for, 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 for a coaching staff or a mentor to really manage him well to really keep a close eye on him and give him a little bit of special treatment because he's a, he's another one who's just, he's so close to breaking out and finding himself, finding his best performances. Mm. What kind of games are we going to see Reese Nelson in? We're blessed to have the Champions League. We're blessed to be back in the cup competitions. But do you think he needs to be playing in the games where he's going to be able to flourish as opposed to the games against, you know, your cities or your Newcastles? I think Reese Nelson needs to stay fit. I think the talent's there. He's got the trust of Arteta. I think that's very, very clear. Winning Arteta's trust isn't an easy thing, and Nelson has that. He's just got a big contract at the club. He's just uh, come on against United. He missed preseason with a laceration to his foot, and that's obviously taken time to heal. But he looks in really good shape. He looked in great shape last year. He's put on a lot of muscle since he was... A very, very small, slight young winger who was brushed off the ball with ease. And I think Nelson's completely changed his whole lifestyle, diet, and his training approach to training. And that's a big part of why he's got Arteta's trust. But the biggest thing isn't ability, it's literally being available to play with him. So every time he gets close to establishing a set of minutes where he may come off the bench in two or three games in a row, he gets injured. And then he's out for three weeks. By that point, someone else has established themselves and Nelson has to start that process all over again. So we we missed him for the Europa League games last year because of injury. He He would have played a lot more minutes had it not have been for injuries. And I think that's something that, again... I talk about availability and how important it is. And just, it's a skill in itself. It's part of a player's makeup. It's something that when we looked at Declan Rice, we we looked very much at how often he was available. But if you look even last season, Nelson missed um, eight games at the start of the season with thigh problems. And that was 56 days out from the 8th of August to the 3rd of October. And then December, so just back from the World Cup, and um, when Saka and Martinelli had been away, and you think you're going to get some minutes here because these guys are going to need to have their workloads managed, he gets injured again with more thigh problems, and he was out from the 22nd of December to the 12th of February, missing another nine games, and that was 52 days out. So just last season alone, he missed 108 days of football, and 17 games through injury. That's a lot of games that he could have got minutes in. And if he does that again this season, we absolutely need to sign a replacement for Saka. So and if if we had a Reese Nelson that was fully fit for the season, I'm more than comfortable having him as Saka's backup because I think he's got the ability. I think he's he can score goals. He creates the way he runs at defenders. His dribbling, I don't know, him, Saka, and Smith Rowe, are all great at keeping the ball really, really close to their toe. Mm. When they run at defenders, the ball is so tight. It's a bit like the way Messi carries a ball. And if you look at when someone's advancing into the box, Raheem Sterling's very good at this as well. If um, you're advancing with those really short touches that with the ball at your toe, it's really dangerous for defenders because they're scared to like commit because if they commit, you push it forward and they bring you down. So... Nelson has all those abilities. It's literally down to keeping him on the pitch and keeping him fit. And if we can do that, I think we now all trust Nelson. We all know what he can do. Arteta trusts him. It's can you stay fit, man? 
Yeah, and I think part of it has got to do with the type of games that he plays and the minutes that he has as well, whether he comes on in the last 10 minutes or whether, you know, we look at uh, an opposition like, say, you know, Bournemouth. I mean, no game is easy. I always try and pick out the games and I, that, that might suit a player like him. But, um, yeah... <laughs> It's so difficult, isn't it, for, with someone like that? He's such a good... He's got so much talent, but as you said, it is literally just keeping him fit and making sure he doesn't relapse or suffer another injury. We're going to be entering a really critical phase after the international break where Arsenal play Everton away... Twice three, a week a, as well. A massive game, and then three days after that, it's the Champions League, first game um, of, the, of, of, the, of this year's competition. And... Yep. A significant one as well because it will be the last season where we play the in the uh, you know the original format. So it will be interesting whether we see Art- how Arteta shapes it up. And actually, maybe this is a good segue to to talk about the next five games and what it means for team rotating and maybe how Arteta goes about um, yeah shaping his squad and y- utilizing his his squad to the best um, of of his abilities. You know. We, we don't really have any straightforward games. In fact, with the League Cup put in there as well, it gives us even less time to recover. So you've got Everton on next Sunday, and then three days after that, the Champions League at home. And then um, four days after that, the North London Derby at home, followed by three days after that, Brentford away at, in the League Cup. Um, and then three days after that, away to Bournemouth. Those are the five games and three days recovery between each game. We will probably, at the end of this run of fixtures, we'll probably look back and question why more signings weren't made. I get that impression anyway. Um, If we can come out of those five games injury-free as well, that would be quite nice. Yeah, I mean, it's what we wanted. So having Champions League football, more games... This is what we've wanted. This is what we've been pining after. And I, it's a weird one because I've been looking at our squad and thinking about it a lot. And the big thing that I've said all along was I only wanted Arsenal to make another sign-in if it was someone of that level of quality. If you look at the players we brought in, David Rea, unbelievable player, and someone that we will probably see make his debut because Bournemouth, Brentford have cleared him to play against them in the League Cup. So, which shows that that, that deal is going to be made permanent. They're, they're, it's it's much more than a loan. Um, the Jurian Timber signing, that, that, sign, that injury is catastrophic in the sense that we had signed, in my opinion, the perfect player for what we needed. He was someone... I genuinely think he would have played 40 to 50 games this season because he would have been on the pitch pretty much every week, whether he was playing right back, left back, at centre half, potentially doing some kind of job in midfield. I think he would have been a guy that was just always on the pitch without really nailing down, kind of the ultimate utility man. Um, Declan Rice, obviously, and Havertz. So for me, if we were to add another player, it had to be someone that was either a young player with incredible potential that was very much ready to play. But we've got a lot of them, and we've got the, the one area in Lewis Skelly, who I keep harping on about them, but I think they're both that good. Um, so just adding another body for the sake of it, I, I think you, that gets you into the Cedric situation. And um, we, we've been there before. Rash deadline day moves. I just think it's not part of Arteta's makeup to do that. And yes, I would have liked one more player. And I think when you look at how City finished the window and how strong their squad now looks after losing a couple of players, it would have been nice to get someone in. And but yeah, all in all, I think our squad is very, very strong. And there's also we're seeing Vieira step up who. Let's face it, we had written him off two months ago. We were thinking, is he good enough? And basically discarding him and thinking he'll probably leave for a fraction of what we paid next summer. Um, Smith Rowe still has to get minutes. So there are players. I think my worry is defensively. We've got six defenders. Party's out for six weeks. Who would have become the seventh? And um, it's one injury to that back line and suddenly we're looking a bit shaky again and you're 
looking at Zinchenko and Tomiyasu and thinking, when are you guys going to get injured? Mm. Yeah, and it doesn't fill me with much confidence knowing we're playing Everton away, which can... It's a tricky place to go to, number one. Number two, if we look at their last four or the first four games that they've played, they've lost all four. Uh, no, they've lost all three and then they drew to Sheffield United. They're sitting 18th. That's going to be a really physical game. Yeah. And they're going to bring everything to the table. I mean, they've got a really physical squad as well with Anana in midfield, you know, uh, Decore. Um, you look at players like G- uh, Gay as well, Tarkovsky, um, Godfrey. <laughs> Godfrey, who we know is is can be one of those defenders who unfortunately He's just if you get on the wrong shit. side on yeah if you get on the wrong side of him a wrong side of the you, tackle you, you don't have it. to get on the wrong side of him he's just a thug what he did to Tomiyasu a few years ago he yeah. kicked lumps out of Arsenal he should have been sent off but weekend, if yeah. you look at the team that played last last weekend it was Idrissa Gay um, Abdoulaye Decore and uh, Amadou Onana in midfield they are three Decore and Onana are big boys Gay's I think he's like 5, 10, 11, but he's a very solid physical midfielder. Um, but like, it's not a good team. Like Everton teams for 20 years have been really, really solid sides. Under Moyes, they had a really good side with Cahill and Arteta and players like that. Um, and then even in... Like, it, it was the minute the money came into Everton, they just... They spend it spectacularly badly. But I do think the midfield battle of Decore, Onana and Gay against Odegaard, Rice, and I think Havertz will keep his place. And I know we talked about bringing Fabio Vieira in, but I actually think Havertz's height could be really useful in that game. And defensively, Havertz has been very good. His defensive numbers are much better than Granit Xhaka's were. So I think a lot of the fears we had about Havertz off the ball haven't actually proved to be true it's more we want to see more on the ball but yeah they they have got a big side and it's one we haven't won at Everton since 2017 when we beat them 5-2 and Ozil scored a header and interestingly so six years and if we win on Sunday it will be our 900th Premier League away win so I think going somewhere like Everton and getting over that hurdle what a place to get your 900th win in the league. That's a great stat, by the way. Um, but my question what would I'm be here to for. you. <laughs> my question <laughs> to you would be, wh- what, which squad do you play? In which game do you play your strongest squad? Do you play it against Everton or do you play against PFC, P- PSV? Everton. Because, yeah, if you play it against Everton, then the first Champions League game that we're going to have at the Emirates for a very long time, playing a slightly weaker side... Is that gonna be you know, the I, I pressure think... of, of that game? Is it gonna um, is that gonna play into that game too much? No, I think we'll play probably the team similar to what, how we played against United at Everton, and then the only changes in the Champions League I would suspect are in either game. I think we'll maybe see like we'll see Tommy Asu start in one of them, and we'll see Fabio Vieira start in one of them. I don't envision many changes. And then the the other change, it'll either be Jesus or Enkedia. So I think they'll, they'll be the three players that rotate. I think everything else will stay the same. And I think that's something that we will get used to more is kind of like mini rotations as opposed to in the Europa League where it was almost two sides playing. So you had your Europa League team and you had your Premier League team and the Europa side would feature like maybe Saliba or Gabriel and like some games Saka and so on. I think the Champions League will be very similar to the Premier League and that's part of why we are starting more slowly. It's that build up to towards the, the intense period of the season. So you can't see potentially Nelson, Smith Rowe, Trossard starting any of those two games? Trossard Potentially, I I don't think Smith Rowe will. Um, I don't think Nelson will, purely because I think we we have to win at Everton. I think it's a game that we have to get past that hurdle, a bit like City in the Community Shield. We shouldn't have a mental block against Everton, given how bad they are. 
And I think it's a game Arteta will want to win. You have to remember, he spent a large part of his career playing for Everton. So yeah. he's going he's gonna to hate it every time that he goes there and gets beaten by a terrible Everton side. Like his Everton side were a top 16, and they're now a relegation side, and we can't beat them at Goodison. So I think the priority this season will be the Premier League, and I think we can advance in the Champions League with changes, but not. it won't be wholesale, and I think we will see Smith Rowe get minutes this season, but... I don't think he'd be thrown in as a starter and I don't think there will be huge rotation between those games. And then we've got Spurs a few days afterwards. So That's exactly what I was going to say. I, I, the I North think it's going to be Derby's, a fairly intense block. That North London derby at the end of those two games with the Champions League sandwiched in between them, um, it's really difficult act to, to, to balance, you know, because you can't play three strong starting lineups and you can't have three games in a row where Declan Rice plays where, you know, even someone like William Saliba or Gabriel, I'd be very nervous seeing uh, those players play all three games in such short um, recovery time periods. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not too bothered. I think this is something that, as I say, we wanted. The Invincibles did this. Fabregas and that team did it. And they were a very, very young team. It's, I think because we've been through a period where we've been so bad and haven't had these games, like all top teams do this. It's just, I think sometimes we are obsessed with wrapping players in cotton wool. And a big part of that is because we have been burned so many times because of the injuries. But actually, these are top, top level athletes. And Arteta's talked about it before, three games in a week, you need to be able to play it. Arteta did it at Arsenal. He played... Premier League, Champions League, and it wasn't a problem. We see Frank Lampard used to play 58 games a season year after year. So the game has become more intense, but if you look at Man City's players, a lot of them do it, and City do rotate, but City don't completely rotate every week. Rodri always plays. Um, Haaland pretty much always plays. And... um, it's those core group of players that play all the time. Like Arteta at the end of his career at Arsenal, 38 games first season, 43-43. So that was him in his early 30s. And he was still playing Premier League football and then playing Champions League as well. So it's a case of these players, Fabregas did this for years, that if you want to be at that top, top level, you have to be able to do it. And sadly, I think, you just can't wrap them in cotton wool. And I think mm. we're we're also at the point where fitness is building. And I've seen people say Saka looks burnt out, he needs a rest. I'm not saying that at all. It's, I think if Saka has like a 7 out of 10 game, which is a 9 out of 10 for every other winger, everyone's like, he's burnt out, he needs a rest. It's like actually he just didn't have an electrifying performance. And you have to remember last year as well, it took him five games before he got his first goal. He's already got two this season and it's let him grow into the season before we start telling everyone how tired he is. Yeah. And just on Saka, finally, before we end the show, um, earlier this week, Saka and Odegaard and Ramsdale as well, um, all nominees for uh, Ballon d'Or, the top, you know, um, awards in their respective fields. Um just a quick word on them, really. You know, they're they're still so so young, and and to be nominated for such an award is well, it could do one of two things: it could propel them to the next level, or um, could stagger their their development just on the basis of it getting a bit too much for them. But they don't strike me as players to um, let themselves get carried away with such accolades. Um, but yeah, just 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 a quick word on 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 those two and what this season could mean for them, and also where do you think they'll come in the Ballon d'Or list? So, Ramsdale isn't on the Ballon d'Or list. He's yeah. on the Yashin Trophy, which is the top keepers alongside Onana and um, Mike Mannion and Courtois Ter Stegen. So he's in good company. Um, Emiliano Martinez has managed to creep his way in there. <laughs> and um, The World Cup, of as, course, yeah. Just purely because of the World Cup. But um, 
Odegaard and Saka very much. I, I talked about this a lot in the 15 minutes. Sean, I absolutely loved the outrage from United fans. So how, Saka is on there. How's Rashford not on there? Saka deserves to be on there. If you look at him at the World Cup, superb. And the World Cup, because of when it was, seems like an an eternity ago. And actually, Saka was England. I think Saka, Bellingham, and Rice were England's best players at the World Cup. And then Saka, 14 goals and 11 assists last season in the league. He very much was the the star man for us and scored against United home and away, he scored against City, got two against Liverpool. And so he was scoring against big teams in big games. And in terms of where he'll finish, I wouldn't be surprised to see him finishing around 10th, maybe 15th. So somewhere in the middle. And um, Odegaard, I would put somewhere similar. I think Odegaard actually had a better season than Saka last year. But he didn't play at the World Cup, which could skew the view, the, the vote. Again, United fans were outraged. Bruno Fernandes was on the list, and Odegaard wasn't. But it's um, like when you look at what those two did last season and where they scored the goals. Rashford and Bruno scored a lot in the Europa League and stuff against really, really poor teams. Saka and Odegaard's numbers all came in the Premier League against top top sides. So. So, yeah, I think they'll both finish kind of in the middle. I think the two of them, the reason I answered no to your question at the very start of the show about whether it would propel Saka, I think he's just so laser-focused, and I think the same about Odegaard. The two of them have incredible humility for players their age. If I was had Martin Odegaard's ability and what he had achieved by the time he was 15, my head wouldn't get through the door. I'd be that egotistical. It would be... The fact that he's managed to stay so humble and so dedicated and disciplined and then get to the level he's at at Arsenal now after the disappointments at Madrid, I don't think this will do anything for them. If anything, just being in that company and not being near the like the winners, it will just make them more focused to keep growing. So I don't think the nomination will actually do anything to elevate them and I think Saka wants to win the Ballon d'Or. He doesn't want to be on the shortlist. And he talked about that a couple of weeks ago in an interview. He wants to hit those individual awards as well as winning for Arsenal. So uh, that's what I want to see from players. I love Cristiano Ronaldo whenever he was one of the first to come out and admit, I want to win the Ballon d'Or. And because I'm sure every player does, they just, it sounds bad saying, I want to win that award. I was quite. I'm quite surprised to hear you say that they, they'd finish 15th fish, um, especially Saka. I feel like Saka can break into the top ten. I do believe so. Just looking at the nominees now, I don't see many, um, you know, who have had a better season than him. Right. So if we go down the list, you've got Benzema, Salah, Bellingham. You've got De Bruyne. Um, you've got Haaland. Um, Let's pick our top ten. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So right. yeah. I'm going to pin it on you this time. So Fine. you go first. Fine. I'll who, go do you, so, who do you think should win it? I think th- that's a tough one because I don't think anyone has been particularly incredible. But just uh, base just basing it uh, on purely the World Cup, I'd give it to Messi because he's, he won the World Cup and I think single-handedly he carried the Argentina team to lift that trophy. Um, but again, we're, we're, we're kind of in... We're, we're, right now, we're in the crossrails of the old generation being faded out and the new generation sort of entering into their prime. So there's no one single player who's propelled themselves. The closest will probably be Jude Bellingham, I think. Haaland. The way, oh yeah, sorry, Haaland, right. So how did I forget about him, Haaland? After Haaland, you've got Bellingham who's gone to Madrid and is doing wonders. Haaland, yes, it's just a completely different beast. He's won the quadruple. I'm not going to put these players in any particular order, but my top 10, um, just going through the list now, uh, like I said at the beginning, it would be Benzema, Salah, Bellingham, Saka, um, Haaland, Messi, Mbappe, of course, Harry Kane, unfortunately, but he's at Bayern Munich. Now, so I, say that, I say that with a little bit more, yeah, a little bit less resentment. Modric, and finally... Probably Rodri. Yeah. That'll be my 10. 
Well, my turn would be Messi. I think Messi will win it. I I think just purely on that World Cup, what he did mm. was spectacular. Um, Messi, Haaland, Rodri. I, I personally think Rodri should be in with a shot of winning it. Um, Kane, Bellingham. Um, ooh, Mbappe, Ossenheim. How is Julian Alvarez on the list? <laughs> so you got to put Saka top 10, surely. <laughs> there aren't that many great ones in there. I'm going to put Odegaard in mm. instead of Saka in the top 10. Um, Interesting. Then De Bruyne. And oof, last one. I'm going to go with Gundahan. Yeah, that's, that was a good one. He's a dark horse, I have to be honest, because he did have a really, really good season last season. He basically carried uh, City through those last 10 games. Yeah, he, um, he, he was their clutch player. He was yeah. the one at the end of the season that I was like, that's what we need is next season if we get to this point. And I think Odegaard started to do it for us. He got the two against Chelsea, scored against Newcastle. Yeah. And um, he was really trying. He obviously got the goal to start the comeback against Southampton. So he was the player that was in the final stage of the season. He was the one for me that was trying to be that player. And I think there were others around him. And I think injuries really hampered us as well. But Gundogan, for me, scored in the FA Cup final as well. So got some big, big goals for yeah. them as the season went on. But yeah, did, the... Did you notice that we didn't include any goalkeepers? <laughs> Shows our bias yeah, a well, little bit. You know something? I'm looking at the keepers on the list. Emmy yeah. Martinez had a decent World Cup. He, in the final, he didn't have a good game. Mm. He saved one or two penalties. I can't remember how many. But Mbappe's goal, that ridiculous strike, the one that goes across goal, he should be doing much better with that. And um, his ego is far, far bigger than his ability. And Onana, yeah, he's a good keeper, but I'm not putting you on the Ballon d'Or top 10 list for reaching the Champions League final. Mm. And um, like he didn't win Serie A. And I think he was very good, but he made a lot of mistakes last season. If you look back at what he actually did, there were a lot of mistakes. And still a top, top keeper, but not for me. Um, is Ederson on the list or Allison? You know you know who I'd really like to see in the top 10? And I think justifiably as well. Um, Yassin Bono, who had a really good World Cup for Morocco. Um, I really enjoyed watching him and more so like his distribution. And mm. made some top saves as well. Oh, he's on um, there, yeah. Yeah, he's mm, on there. So, so I, I think I think he'd be in a shout with um, yeah sneaking into that top. Four. Do you know why Ronaldo isn't on the list? Any idea? I guess he didn't have the best World Cup. He wasn't playing for United, and then he went to Saudi quite early. So it's crazy to think he's not on the list, and you've got players like Moani there. From PSG, yeah. Although I think we, it's very much the the passing of the torch. Mm. And Vinicius Junior. I mean, I, I really yeah. like Vinicius, but his he doesn't actually score as many goals as yeah. people think he does. And so yeah, I, I think it's there. There's a lot of competition there. I think it's a more level playing field than it's ever been. And I, I think Haaland's achievements are always written off. I think. Mm. Like, don't get me wrong, he's playing in a ridiculous team. and But w- this is what winds me up so much when people say Arsenal need a 25-goal-a-season striker. If you have a, a Haaland who scores 25 goals a season, not good enough. 25 goals for what Haaland does on the pitch isn't good enough. 36 goals with what Haaland does is what you get because Haaland has a very low-touch rate. His link-up play, aside from the game against us last season where he was superb, Haaland doesn't get involved in the link-up play a lot. He drifts in and out of games and then he steps up big moments. 
And there's a big, big difference in a player scoring 25 goals and 36 goals. So there's only one Holland, and you need a player doing much more than what Holland does if they're scoring 20 goals. We had, we had Obama Yang who did the stuff Holland does, but he got early 20s, and that wasn't good enough. It's so I, I would much rather have a Jesus getting 15, 16 goals doing everything he does than a player who does none of that, stays in the box and gets you 25 goals because I think that impacts other players around them. And I think we are just seeing a complete force of nature in Holland in that he is just a goal-scoring machine. So, so yeah, I think he deserves more credit than he gets. Mm. Yeah, I think I'd rather have Arsenal, you know, have four, 15 goalless season players than, yeah, as you say, one player who ends up scoring 35 yeah. odd goals. Um, okay, good stuff. Well, it's that time of the show again where we must say goodbye. Um, I want to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened up until this point. Thank you very, very much. If you did enjoy this episode, please do give us a five star review on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Let us know what you thought of the show by reaching out to us on Twitter. You can find us over there at Arsenal Therapy. You can also find Adam over there at, at AdamKeys underscore. And you can find myself over there at Gunner Since 96. As always, we will be back next week with a game as well to give you your usual weekly dose of Arsenal Therapy. But if you can't wait until then, make sure to head over to the Arsenal Therapy YouTube channel where we are on the cusp of reaching a thousand subscribers five away at this moment in time um and yeah you can find us over there uh, for the 15 minute show where we'll be taking you through all the latest bits of arsenal updates that's every tuesdays and thursdays we try to make it at 8 30 a.m but never really works out at that time so um yeah you'll find us over there every tuesdays and thursdays nonetheless and yes you guessed it the show is indeed 15 minutes long so make sure uh, make sure to head head over to the youtube channel make sure to also head over to the website for the blog posts where we'll be breaking down all of our thoughts and feelings on the game and much much more so enjoy the rest of the international break we will see you next week for a game um but until then take care of yourselves have a lovely week and we'll speak to you soon thank you very much bye-bye <laughs>